All right, gang, I love those songs. Uh, take your Bible and open it to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to thank you for all of the kind wishes and text messages I received yesterday on my birthday. My phone blew up. Now, if you didn't know it was my birthday, I'll give you a moment right now. Go ahead and write it down. <laughs> February 19th. Uh, but thank you. You're very kind, and you made me feel really good yesterday, and I appreciate that. Uh, today, we're going to begin a brand new series, and today we're going to try and answer questions about that book you're holding in your lap. Now, I received my first Bible when I was just a little kid in elementary school uh, from my parents. Now, most of us got our first Bible from either our parents or somebody at the church. Uh, in either case, we didn't know at the time how the Bible was put together or how it came to be, but since we trusted the person who gave us our Bible, we grew up trusting the Bible. But as we got older, and we learned what was in the Bible, and we learned how to study the Bible and read the Bible, and we learned what else is in the Bible, many of us were troubled by what we learned, and it may have hurt our faith in the Bible. Everybody who reads the Bible is going to have questions. If you spend any time whatsoever reading or studying your Bible, you're going to have questions about this book. It doesn't matter how old you are, how educated you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been following Jesus. If you spend any time in the Bible, you're going to have questions. I hope you understand that there is no other book in, the, in existence that comes close to what you're holding in your lap. The Bible is in a class all by itself. When it comes to ancient history, the accurate recording of people and dates and places and civilizations and events, no other book in ancient history even comes close to the information we have in your Bible. However, if you're going to read it, and you should read it, you're going to have questions. So for the next several weeks, Tyler and I are going to make an attempt to answer a lot of the most commonly asked questions about your Bible. Every service will be divided into two parts. I'll answer the first question, and Tyler will answer the second question. Or Tyler will answer the first question, and I will answer the second question. The hopes of a series like this, entitled Good Question, is to deepen your faith walk, to strengthen your relationship with God by renewing your faith and uh, in His Word, in the Bible. The first thing that I want to make sure everybody gets is that the Bible is a history book, not a storybook. It's history, not fantasy. It is easy to assume as we grow up reading the stories, and they are fantastic in your Bible, stories like David and Goliath, or stories like Jonah and the whale, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel in the lion's den. It is easy to assume that the Bible is nothing more than a grand, fantastic storybook, like Aesop's fables or something. However, the Bible is a history book primarily. It is not a religious storybook. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16 says this, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. No, no. We were eyewitnesses 
of his majesty. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into some of the questions that you may have concerning scripture. And as I said at the outset, if you've ever spent any time at all reading or studying your Bible, you have questions. Here are just a few of the questions that we're going to try and answer. Is the creation story in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 literal? Are we to take those two chapters as to how God created the universe literally or is that some sort of figurative language we're supposed to interpret it as an analogy? Which is it? Another question that's commonly asked is, does the Bible actually endorse polygamy and incest? I mean, think about it. If Adam and Eve had three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth, and Cain murdered Abel, where did Seth and Cain's wives come from? People want to know. Here's the third question. Do we need the Old Testament? I mean, why don't we just focus on the words of Jesus and let that be enough? Do we actually need all of the legal jargon of Leviticus? What possible good can come from studying Exodus? Here's another question. At his death, did Jesus really descend into hell? Where was the body of Jesus during the three days in the tomb? We're going to dive into those questions, and once you begin asking questions, that's a good thing because ignorance loses its power over you. If I can ever get a couple in marriage counseling to start asking themselves the right questions, they begin to make progress exponentially or expeditiously, I should say, because once you begin to ask questions, ignorance loses its power over you. And one of the major problems in the church today is our ignorance. We don't know enough about the Word of God. We don't know enough about the principles of God. It's one of the reasons we suffer in our faith walk. It's one of the reasons we feel overwhelmed and overpowered by our circumstance. We just don't know enough about the Word of God, and that's why our faith walks flounder. If you want to be strong in your faith, you've got to have this information. I spend time in this book almost every day and have for 30 or 40 years now. It's not only part of my job, it's part of my daily routine because of the influence and power and strength of that book. Here are the two questions that we're going to try and answer today. Question number one, is the Bible really God's Word? Did it really come from God? And then Tyler's going to answer the second question, which translation of the Bible, and there are many, is actually the best. So question number one, here we go. Is the Bible really God's word? Whenever we consider the Bible's authenticity, its accuracy, its reliability, its truth, we're talking about the idea of inspiration. Are you familiar with that word? Inspiration. However, biblical inspiration may not mean exactly what you think it means. The Bible claims that it is inspired of God. Now think about this. If the Bible truly comes from God, that means that it has built-in authority. If this book is actually from our Creator, then it has built-in authority. That's one of the reasons you may be skeptical of it, because being skeptical of the Bible is your way out. If the Bible is truly from God, it has authority. That means I am accountable to it. I am accountable to its principles. And one of the reasons that people are skeptical of the Bible is because they don't want to be accountable to it. 
Listen to 2 Timothy. If you have your Bible, look at verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul wrote, all Scripture. Now, when Paul wrote this, he was primarily talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament was just beginning to come together. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice the phrase, God breathe. It's from that language that we come up with the word inspiration. However, the reason I feel God breathed is a better interpretation than inspired or inspiration is because of what that Greek word means. God breathed literally means that God exhaled the scripture. Now, the reason this matters is because when we think of inspiration, we typically think of an outside force penetrating an author or a painter, an artist, or a musician. And we say things like, that painting is inspired. What we mean by that is that some outside force entered the artist. He painted a painting that was almost outside of himself. It's beyond what we would imagine. And we say it's inspired. Many, many people believe that Handel's Messiah was inspired. What they mean by that is that God entered the musician and caused him to write something that was beyond him. But that's not what the Bible says about itself. Notice it's the fact that the scripture is inspired, not the author. According to the Bible, the Bible is the star, not the author. The Bible wasn't written by important people. They didn't have to be because the emphasis is not on the author. The emphasis is on the fact that God literally exhaled the scriptures. Again, all scripture is God breathed. Now, Jesus affirms the authenticity and inspiration of the Bible in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus said this, don't think that I've come to do away with your law and your prophets. What's he talking about? The first five books of your Old Testament are the books of law. We call them the Pentateuch. And the prophets are the major and minor prophets in the latter part of the Old Testament. So Jesus was affirming the inspiration, the fact that the Old Testament came from God. Interestingly enough, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul affirms that the works of Peter were inspired of God. And Peter affirms the works of Paul were inspired of God. You see, the process of inspiration is such that God breathed out the scriptures and then moved the human beings to write them down. But the authors aren't the star. The breath of God is the star. The process that I'm describing is laid out for us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Peter wrote, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. In other words, men didn't simply write out their thoughts and then call it scripture or call it inspired. Peter says, no, prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were, very interesting word, carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word from which we translate carried along is a word that's often used when describing the wind as it carries a vessel across the ocean. 
What happened in your Bible was that God breathed out the inspired word, and then the Holy Spirit moved along these authors like the wind pushes a ship across the water, and they wrote down the words that were inspired. Using their individual personalities and their individual experiences, their individual uh, knowledge and understanding, uh, God used that to carry them along to record his inspired revelation. Now, since the Bible is inspired, meaning that it came from God, then we have to accept that it is true and accurate. You see, just because there are parts of your Bible that you don't understand, that does not mean that they are not true and accurate. No more so than if your doctor told you you're going to have to lower your salt intake because too much salt will raise your blood pressure. You might not understand how your diet affects your health, but that doesn't make it any less true. You may have no idea or understanding why 20 minutes a day of simple exercise can greatly and dramatically improve your physical condition. Even if you don't understand it, that does not mean it's not true and accurate. Inaccurate. So just because we have questions about the Bible, Old Testament and New, that doesn't mean that it's not true. Now, when we teach that the Bible is true and accurate, we're talking about inerrancy. Inerrancy. At this church, we believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. But now let me clear this up. I'm not talking about this Bible or the Bible that sits in your lap. I'm talking about the original autographs penned by the prophets and the apostles. You see, when Paul sat down and wrote a letter to the church at Corinth, we call it 1 Corinthians, those original autographs were inspired and inerrant. When Isaiah spoke to his countrymen in Israel, those original autographs were accurate and inerrant. Because we don't have those original autographs today gives many people cause to question the reliability of this book. But as I have demonstrated to you on more than a few occasions with my stacks of paper on this stage, we have an enormous number of early copies and manuscripts that we can compare and contrast leading us to conclude that the Bible you hold in your lap is better than 99.5% accurate in its reflection of the author's original autograph. And that alone sets it apart from every other historical writing you could imagine. Now think about this for a moment, and I'll wrap my part up. To get this book, God used 40 authors. 40 authors to write Old Testament and New. They wrote in primarily three different languages. They lived in or came from three different continents. It took a process of about 1,600 years for it to be written down and compiled. And these authors were a wide-ranging group of individuals, from kings to holy men, from rich to poor, from shepherds to fishermen, There was a doctor in the mix, a politician in the mix, a tax collector in the mix. And yet, in spite of all that diversity, there is a unity in the Word of God. 
the Bible tackles dozens and dozens of incredibly complicated and controversial subjects, and yet in light of that, there is a unity in Scripture. Look, imagine. Let's take 10 people who are like-minded, raised in the same culture, living in the same neighborhood. Let's put them in a room and ask them to write two paragraphs on just one controversial subject. Guaranteed, when they all finish, we'd have at least six different viewpoints. The Bible's not like that. The Bible, if it comes from God, comes with built-in authority. And if it comes from God, is reliable and accurate. The Bible has been changing lives for literally centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years. Billions of lives have been altered, have been changed because of this book. The Bible says the person who reads it is like a tree that's planted by the waters. It grows tall and strong. It bears fruit in its season. That is why you should read your Bible. gang, leave your Bibles open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to keep going where Pastor Mike started us out earlier, but I want to share with you for just a second. Did y'all know that Pastor Mike and I do something basically every single Sunday that in a lot of churches we'd be frowned upon? That thing is what we wear. We wear blue jeans. Um, Very often wear blue jeans at least. Uh, Pastor Mike, I don't know if you know this, he's Levi's man. And I, I used to be a Levi's man myself, um, still don't mind Levi's, but Pastor Mike gives me a hard time about the jeans I wear. He calls them designer jeans. Um, and I, I had a, this mind that I was going to bring him up here on stage, and we were going to turn around and show you the difference, but then I said that's probably not a good idea, so um, I'm not going to do that. But my wife took me to a store in the Savannah Mall called Buckle several years ago, and they have some name brands of jeans. Levi has 501, 505. Those were some of the ones that I, was, I preferred. And Buckle has a brand, a model of jean called Tyler. I wear them now. Um, so that's, that's how that came to be. But the bottom line in the story is what, what, it, what it boils down to is Pastor Mike has a preference. And so do I. Any of us have preferences about what we wear. I'm going to take that idea, the idea of preference, and talk about the point of this second question, which is which version of the Bible, which translation of the Bible is best? The answer ultimately you will see is it's the one that fits your life. It's the one that you'll, 
use. It's the one that you prefer. Now, I want to take a couple of minutes and go through some teaching moments with you about why we have different versions, how that came to be. We're going to put a a, a slide up on the screen. I'm going to turn around and, and, and talk to you from that for just a minute. On one side, we have formal translations of scripture. Pastor Mike talked about those the original documents that that our bibles are translated from and then as we move to the right you get less formal. You get the the can you go back a slide Greg please? You go to the dynamic which is more thought for thought type of of translations of scripture and then the paraphrasing which is much much more free and you'll see underneath that different translations that different people use commonly, different people prefer. We, Pastor Mike and I, speak out of NIV. That's what you hear most of the time here in, at Grace Community Church. You'll see us change that up sometimes to prove a point, to, to put an emphasis on, on one word or another. And we just want you to know that that's the reason that there are different translations and you see different words. The team of of translators were emphasizing their goal was something different. It doesn't make one or more more or less legitimate than another. Now here's how this really works. We're going to take this 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 translation, this this snippet from Job, chapter 1, verse 1, and you see at the top, it almost looks like it's upside down. You have the original Hebrew text. Now, if anybody in here reads Hebrew, find something that has that, because that's going to be the, if you want the original, that's where you need to go. But the next thing that happens as these translators are working through this process is you end end up with called a transliteration. What that is, is they take the original language and they convert it to an alphabet that they're more familiar with. So that original, at the top, you've got Hebrew, and then it, I was going to try to read it to you guys, but it would, I'd have to go get a couple more books and it would take a while. But you end up with a transliteration, which is just different letters that say the same thing. And then you have a word-for-word translation. On that last image we looked at, this would be the ones all the way on the the left, an interlinear type thing, where man there was in land of Uz Job, his name. It sounds like Yoda talking. It's not real easy to follow. And then a translator, and this also, that that last image we looked at, has the job of trying to make this make sense. We're going to put it in in some sort of grammatical sentence structure that somebody like you or I can pick this up, read it, and it makes sense. So we end up with Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. One of those is really easy to understand. The other one, again, it's we can listen to Yoda and figure out what he's saying, but wouldn't you prefer... To, to really understand what you're reading, to not have to put so much mental energy and effort into just understanding the sentence, not, not m- much less what's behind it. But there's a couple problems. The problems start with not all words translate between languages easily. We've stood up here, Pastor Mike has spent time talking on, about the word love Eros, phileo, and agape are the common 
common uses of, of the word love in Scripture. And for us, we translate that love. There's three words that mean three different things. Eros is your romantic love. Phileo is your brotherly love. And agape is godly love. There's three different meanings that we use one word without some sort of context. You can completely be confused about what the heck we're reading. You have to know something more about that. And that's why these translators spent the time that they did and some things look a little bit different between one translation or another. They're trying to make that easier for somebody to understand or easier to communicate. Another problem with it is your target audience. Who's, who's actually reading this stuff? And the words don't always translate very well to a target audience. We live in Statesboro, Bullock County area. If we were to use the name of a local restaurant or a local uh, landmark and say you turn here 301 and 46, but if you were to give those instructions to somebody who has no clue anything about Bullock County, that would mean nothing to them. These words don't always fit the hearer well. I want to give you a warning. I'm not going to beat up. I'm not beating on the King James Version of the Bible or anyone who prefers that version. But just think for a second, if any of you here know the English word, what mammon means. Come grab me afterwards because the first time I read it, I went, a hairy elephant? What are we talking about here? I want to show you a parallel passage from Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. We have King James on the left, and as we go across, you've got the, the, that functional to, uh, to more dynamic translations is how, how I've got this lay, laid out. You've got Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 24 from King James, from the English Standard, from NIV, and from the message, <clears throat> No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be told... He will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. I'm not going to read that all the way through. I'll read that last, that last phrase on the other, the other passages. It says you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot worship God and money both. Pretty much everybody in here knows what money is. Some of us don't have very much, but I know what it is. Now, mammon, I had no clue what it was until I, I went backwards and had to do some digging, some reading. When I study, sometimes I have multiple versions of the Bible on my desk so I can figure out what's that word mean. I can look at another, another translation, and it may tell me immediately what the author's trying to communicate. We know that the author's trying to communicate here money and, and, and worshiping God. You can't worship both of them. That's, it's simple. But the point is that you want to use a translation that uses a language you're familiar with. I personally have three degrees, two from seminaries. And I will tell you that during my last semester, semester of grad school, I had professors and students using words that I had to Google regularly to understand what we were talking about. Like, what is this? For instance... Prolegomena. What is that? It's a word that means your, your foundational language. And I'm, I'm going, somebody, some students using this word, you just want, you're a, you're a 
a teacher's pet, a show-off. That's what you are. Why can't you just say your vocabulary? Because that's what it means. There are words like that. I, again, three degrees, and I'm Googling words like this. Anytime I write the word together, I still spell it out in my head like my third grade teacher taught me to get her every time. And don't get me started on that, that worse your sister, watch your Worcestershire sauce. Can't pronounce it. There's lots of words in the Bible that I really struggle to pronounce. Pastor might come, at, come grab me after a service. Hey, bud, you know you pronounce this really goofy? <laughs> I do. I, I took my best stab at it, too. With all that education, I still sometimes want to read something really simple. There's no, nothing, nothing wrong with that. But why does it matter? Scripture is God's primary way of speaking to us. It's how God talks to us. If we want to know about a given topic, how we should parent, how we should deal with our families, how we should, uh, how we should interact with our spouse, how we should work, how we should handle our money, how church attendance what God's opinion on that is, what God's opinion on giving, what God's opinion on life is, every bit of it's in the book. If you were to think of life like in a piece of furniture from Ikea, and the Bible like the instructions that should come in the box, it's sure a lot easier to put it together if you actually look at the instructions. Some of us can get it done without the instructions, but you get to the end and realize the drawer that's supposed to slide doesn't slide because you left something out you were supposed to put in there. That's how it happens. Paul reminds us of these, this in his instructions to Timothy. So again, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to go through verse 16 and 17. Uh, Pastor Mike just, just hit a portion of that. I'm going to blow across that and keep moving. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Pastor Mike did a fabulous job of explaining to us what God-breathed means. But it being useful, it means it has a purpose, it has a function. It's not just there for our entertainment there's something to get out of it. And then Paul lists those things for teaching. Teaching is uh, for Christians. It's for, for us, for those of us in this room, those of us who want to follow God. It's instructions on, on how to do that. For rebuking, when we miss the mark, it teaches us about that. Correction is doctrinal error. It's when we think the wrong thing about something about God, it helps us with that. And for Training and righteousness, this is more of a parental, parent-to-child kind of relationship, the, the type of care that goes into teaching your child how to do something instead of just correcting something or training something. It's something that, that brings a little more care with it. And then Paul keeps going. He said, so that the servant of God, who's that? Well, in this instance, Paul was writing to Timothy. He's writing to a pastor. But all of us are servants of God. We're all followers of Jesus. If you have a faith walk, this, is, this applies to you, and you are a leader of some sort in some capacity in your circle of influence. People look to you because they know you follow Jesus. 
and they are expecting your example to lead so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want to spend a few minutes on what being thoroughly equipped looks like, what that means, because that's why the translation that you read is important. If you didn't know, there's construction going on outside. Everybody's got that. In a few weeks, there will be concrete and walls going up. In a short time after that, there will be a roof. And we'll have a dried-in addition to this building. Now, when that is done, we're not going to send your kids over there. We're not going to send you over there. We're not going to start hosting smaller groups or small groups over there because there's yet work to be done. There won't be chairs in there. There'll be no plumbing. There'll be no electricity. The sound won't be set up. Eventually, those things will happen. When those things are happen, that will be in a, a building thoroughly equipped for those things. Until then, it's a shell. It's an idea, it's potential. But until it has the things inside it that it needs to be functional, it's not thoroughly equipped. That's us. We are shells. God's word in our lives permeating who we are, changing our opinions, and influencing how we live our lives makes us thoroughly equipped. That's why the version that you read is important because without it, you are likely to be a shell. You may have some chairs. You may have your sound system, but you may not have everything you need. Here's the point, and I'll quit. What I want you guys to remember from the second half of this message is any legitimate Bible translation serves a purpose. It meets the intended purpose that the translators went after when, when they started the translation process, and it has goodness in it. It doesn't matter to me or Pastor Mike which version you read. What matters is that you have one in your hand, whether, it's, whether it looks like this or this, you have one and you'll spend time in it and you'll take it seriously. If you have one, that you take seriously and allow to impact your life, you have the right one. Use it. Can we pray? <clears throat> Father, we are indeed thankful for your word. We're thankful for the, the people that you've called and, and instructed and blessed to make it readable for us, to take the original documents and give us things that we can use in our lives. And God, I pray that you give us a curiosity a hunger and a desire to spend time in your word, to learn about you and learn how our lives ought to look. Lord, help us take it seriously. Help us use it. Lord, we are thankful for all you do in our lives. It's in the name of your son that we, that we pray. Amen. Hey, Grace Community Church. It's good to see you guys this week. Y'all have a great week, and we'll see you next time.